Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 21, The Book of Glory. What was the prophetic significance of Jesus washing his friend's feet? Was he acting even lower than a slave? What did Jesus' actions reveal about the Father? This week, Steve begins our study of the second half of John's Gospel. We're going to do the first half of uh, John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. And um, uh, this has really impacted me personally um, the last week or so. I actually thought I was going to be teaching on the Trinity, and I felt pretty strongly last week when I was praying that I need to go back to John. So here we are. Uh, Christina and I were overseas. We saw some wonderful things happening in, um, <coughs> excuse me, in India. Remarkable things. Um, our partners say that out of our 12-day journey, um, when all the dust settles, he thinks there may be 10,000 new people, not who put their hand up in a meeting, but who are in a house church and are being discipled. So that's pretty exciting. Um, anyway, so we were away there, and then I had to go up to Canada, and then, as I said, I had a bit of a bug. So it's been a long gap, but here we go. And it's very appropriate that we're starting up again uh, here in, in John 17. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, in verse 1, which I'm going to talk about in a minute or two, uh, it is just packed. But what it is, is the pivot point uh, from the first, uh, the first section of John and the second section, um, the second part of his gospel. Verse 1, now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart <coughs> from this world, <coughs> excuse me, and to go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. <coughs> A theologian I like very much, uh, Raymond Brown, uh, has titled the two halves in a way that, that many other commentators have picked up from him. Um, the first half of John's Gospel he calls the Book of Signs, and the second the Book of Glory. And this is the beginning of the Book of Glory. The Book of Signs, Jesus' words and deeds had a wide audience. He was speaking to those who believed and those who didn't believe, those who would follow, those who wouldn't follow. Um, but now we're stepping into the Book of Glory. It's a smaller audience. The audience is those people who believe in who he is. Um, the, the book of glory takes us through the whole process of his glorification, uh, from the passion to the crucifixion to the resurrection. And although it's not as clear as in the synoptics, uh, especially in, in, in Luke, where he's you know rises up, uh, it is, um, the ascension is clearly implied in the last part of John. So, this key phrase, his hour had come, and it announces a whole shift in John's narrative. John takes Jesus from the lowest place to the highest place in these, whatever this is, eight chapters, nine chapters. The hour has come for Jesus to pass from this world to the Father's side, to be with the Father. So here's what I want to do tonight. I thought hard about it for days. How do we go through this? I'm going to I'm going to do it in two sections. Number one, I'm going to do kind of exposition, expository teaching. We're going to try to unwrap some of what's there. And then secondly, um, I want to talk about the so what, the application for this. So let's start by unwrapping what's going on here. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> Verses 1 to 17 are about Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. It is rich with meaning. And once again, as I've been saying to you for months, we see John writing in layers of meaning. And if we just look at the top, we miss most of what he's saying. So... In uh, verse 1, let me read it again. Now, before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This single verse is, is rich in significance, 
And frankly, it sets the tone for everything that's going to follow all the way to the end of John's Gospel in this single verse. Here's some themes that are right there. Passover. Um, (coughs) Pardon me. So we see the setting is the night before the Passover. And we've seen before in John's Gospel, uh, Passover is absolutely critical. This is the third time we come into the Passover season. Because Jesus applies the very meaning of Passover to himself. Um, in, and some of this is review, but it's a long time ago now. In chapter 1, uh, the Passover lamb. It's, this is how he's identified. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? Chapter 1, verse 29. Chapter 2 uh, takes place at the first Passover that's mentioned. And we talked a lot about, for Jesus, Jesus is, is the new temple. Remember I said the temple for the Jews was the place, the intersection of heaven and earth. Remember that, some of you? And the whole context for this was Passover, so chapter 2. Then the next time chapter uh, Passover shows up is chapter 6. We spent a lot of time on chapter 6. Passover is the context for Jesus' teaching about the bread of heaven. Remember also, he fed the 5,000 in chapter 6. Um, so now he's in Jerusalem again for the third and final Passover. Setting is always important, especially, I think, in John's Gospel. It's really, really important. I had a friend call me from Australia uh, last week because she was doing a teaching out of uh, John 20. And as we talked about the context of when John was writing, and you remember I've told you John wrote a generation to a generation and a half after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that, that the issues he was addressing were very different than the synoptics. So likewise, when I talked to my friend about the context of what he was trying to do, it's like the lights went on for her. Aha! And she saw that what she thought she thought um, Jesus was saying, he really wasn't saying it all, and, and John wasn't saying. So the next phrase here, the first is Passover, the second one, his hour had come. <coughs> Bear with me, we're going <coughs> to, pardon me, we're going to go through this fairly carefully. Hopefully the payoff is when we go back to the, the soul what. Um, his hour had come. This hour, this kairos time. Remember I've taught you there's two uh, Greek words for time. Kronos, which is just regular tick, tick, tick time. And kairos, which is a special appointed time by God. And the, this hour, this kairos, is the whole subject of the book of glory, the second half. Um, and now we see, beginning here in verse 1, there is a relentless progression to the cross and to the resurrection. If you start to read this and, and go over it a little bit, it just catches you. It's like it's like I got caught in a, in a current in a canoe once and it didn't matter where I tried to go, I was going in that current. There's an incredible, as I said, a relentless progression and it starts right here. Um, Jesus is now, from this point, very deliberately, with full knowledge, he is approaching his death. John presents this <coughs> as a supreme act of love toward those who believe. So there's two themes in this verse. One is his love for the disciples. And we'll talk about that. And frankly, that's kind of the, the level that most people um, read it at. And, and tonight we're going to go deeper. But it's, clearly it's there. His love for his disciples is the one theme. And the second theme that's right here in verse 1 is Jesus beginning his return to the, the Father. Okay? The third thing that's in this verse. In John 10, Jesus said that the greatest thing uh, is for a shepherd to lay down his life for the sheep. Remember this? No, no, no man of greater love than this. Well, now this is beginning to unfold right in front of us. This isn't just words. This isn't just a, a concept he's teaching. It's, it's happening right before our eyes. And the last phrase in this verse 1, He loved them to the end. 
I want you structurally to think again. Think of how John, I told you repeatedly, there's not a verse wasted in John. There's not a phrase out of place. This is constructed so, so carefully with a clear purpose, right? You remember me saying this to you before? Mm-hmm. Look at this, verse 1. He loved them to the end. This verse, 13.1, is like the, it's like the first bookend. The other bookend is John 19.30. Anybody remember what that is? He's on the cross and he says, it is finished. You see how he structures it? It's like this contains all this incredible, relentless progression that I, I use that phrase tonight. Now, from the earliest, earliest days, the church fathers have recognized the foot washing as a prophetic act. And it points to his upcoming death on their behalf. We're going to talk a lot about this in 20, 30 minutes. So all of this stuff is contained in that very first verse. Isn't that amazing? And in one sense, we went fast. Uh, So it's an incredibly significant verse. If you're somebody who marks up your Bible, mark up verse 1. If your Bible is too good to write in, I understand that. You need to throw it away and get on the distance. Okay. Verse 2. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. This whole episode about the, this incredible demonstration of love is in the context of love being betrayed. We're told. The others don't know yet. But we get to look in. <coughs> Remember back in high school they told you that was dramatic irony. When we know something the characters don't know. <coughs> and that made me think all the way back to the prologue, John 1.11, of Jesus that says, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. Mm-hmm. I couldn't help but think of that when I read verse 2. John mentions betrayal at this point, so that we will connect foot washing with Jesus' upcoming death. It is significant that all this took place during the evening meal. Remember, this is that meal the night before. Most commentators say this is the same as the, as the meal in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's a, a little bit of a timing thing, but most say it's the same one. And in the context of this final meal, this betrayal takes place. And, and the, the evening meal in the Jewish culture <coughs> was a time of intimacy, of fellowship. There was something sacred in the Jewish context about sharing a meal. I haven't been with you guys for seven weeks, and it would have probably taken wild horses for me not to invite you to have a meal together with me tonight. Um, I think that there's something incredibly important. In the practical sense, you just talk, and there's fellowship, and there's sharing, but there's something spiritual, there's something prophetic, there's something profound, I believe, in, in sitting at a table together and eating. So, it is amazing that this betrayal is happening in that context. So John's setting a very powerful scene. Judas' betrayal is being planned. He says in verse 2, the devil had already put it in Judas' heart. Isn't that interesting? Let's go on. Verse (coughs) 3. Pardon me, I'm so sorry. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come from God and was going to God. All things were given to Him, right? You often hear me, if you hear me preach places, I'll say, everybody say all things, all things. You know? It takes us back to Colossians 1, 15-20. But it also takes us to what's called the Great Commission, the end of Matthew's Gospel, where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Therefore go, make disciples. So, the context of what we're about to see is that Jesus has all authority. And we've got to hold on to that to get at some of the... This thing, it's like... It's like a... It's like the Eiffel Tower. Just thought of that. It's like the Eiffel Tower. How many of you have been to the Eiffel Tower? 
It's really French. It's pretty high. Um, it is under constant tension. It was the first building ever engineered like that. And it's under tension. Four different places that are pulling like this, and that's what holds it together. The different forces hold it together. And it suddenly occurs to me, as I'm just saying this off the top of my head here, that there are forces within this first half of John that uh, of John 17 that kind of hold it together. We've got betrayal. We've got Jesus knowing that now we're moving into this last and final phase. We've we've got um, he has all authority, and yet we're about to see how he's going to use it. John is emphasizing that it was the Father's Son, the second person of the triune uh, of the Trinity. Walking in obedience to the Father who was about to subject himself to death. John is saying that he had come, Jesus had come from God. In case anybody has any wondering about that, he is God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. And he, <coughs> he is about to tell us that this is the way the Father displays his authority by emptying himself by serving, and we'll get into that more in a minute. Verse 4 and 5. So Jesus got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. <coughs> Taking off his outer garment, it, the equivalent to stripping down to his underwear. And uh, he, he dressed like a slave. Now, you know what's interesting? Slaves did wash their master's feet, but they did it out of devotion because Jewish law said no master could compel a slave to wash his feet because that's just too low for anybody. Isn't that interesting? Jesus laid aside his clothes and it symbolizes for John laying aside his glory. If you want to make a note, it's, uh, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, what's called the kenosis. I've talked about that before, where Jesus emptied himself. He, he came down and down and down. Okay, we're watching Jesus coming down right now. <coughs> so he laid aside his glory. <coughs> Jesus did this according to the context of John, verses 1, 2, and 3. Why did Jesus do this? It was because he'd come from the Father. Therefore, this foot washing was Jesus' demonstration of revealing who the Father really is. Isn't that interesting? <coughs> who the Father really is. Because don't forget... He's going to say in the next chapter, Hey, Phil, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Let's read verses 6 through 10. So Jesus came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will know. You will never wash my feet, ever, Peter said. Jesus replied, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. <coughs> Simon Peter said to him, good old impulsive, impetuous Peter, said to him, well, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said, One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet but he is completely clean. Now, the, really, the whole key to understanding all these 17 verses is this interchange with Peter and with Jesus. <coughs> Peter was embarrassed. He's sitting there. Jesus comes to him. He's, he's watched him wash a few people's feet. He starts to go to wash his. He says, no way. It's like he, sensory overload. He, no! He was embarrassed because he did not understand the significance of what Jesus was doing. 
Jesus was operating outside of Peter's standard of good behavior, of propriety. And he just withdrew. He pulled back. So, let's go through a few points in this passage, these verses. A little later on, one of the problems or one of the challenges we have in these chapter breaks, which, which came around the 4th century, is we tend to read our Bibles a chapter at a time. And we think of it a chapter at a time, but there was no break. All of this through 17, 13 to 17, is just one continual narrative. But, having said that, in John 15, 3, Jesus is going to tell these guys, you were already clean. So what is Jesus getting at? Let me just go after this again. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. So he said, Lord, not only my feet, my hands, my head. One who is bathed doesn't need to wash anything except his feet. He is completely clean. So, two chapters later, he says to all of them, you are already clean. Remember, that's when he's talking about pruning the, the vine. Now, a traditional and quite common interpretation of the meaning of your, of your bathed, your clean, is that um, the bathe, being bathed refers to baptism. Maybe you've heard this teaching. <clears throat> There's some good basis for it. But that, that he is symbolizing baptism. But after you're baptized, you, you know, you're cleansed, it's a, you're a new beginning. But how many know after you get cleansed and you have a new beginning, you can still get some crud and dust and dirt in your life starts to build up, right? I mean, nobody in this room, of course, but you know somebody who does. So what he's saying is, washing your feet, uh, you don't need to be bathed again. When he says, my head, my hands, everything, he says, no, no. Uh, but we do need a regular, some of the church fathers say, daily cleansing from the spiritual dirt. And that's entirely possible that that's what's going on here. But I think there's also something else. Because in verse 7, he says, you will understand. Does your Bible mainly say you will understand? Most of your translations. Because literally it is, you will know. And what he's talking about, that word is a stronger word than understand, and it means a deep experiential sharing. You're going to experience what I am going to experience. <coughs> Excuse me. Because he says, afterward, afterward you will know. With that verse, John is pointing us to the passion, to the cross. I believe more than anything else, although there's several levels of legitimate and important meaning, but more than anything else, I believe that the foot washing was a prophetic act that pointed to Jesus' humility in death. He humbled himself even to the point of death, Paul said in Philippians, right? And then he says... Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Doesn't that seem strong? Peter's just saying, Lord, Lord, don't wash my feet. I mean, you're the Lord. He says, I've got, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. This foot washing, what's happening at that moment, is so important that without it, a disciple loses his heritage with Jesus. This is an incredibly powerful episode, guys. He says, if I do not wash you, he doesn't say, he's, the language is very particular, if I do not wash you, you can't wash yourself, you can't, if I, and so this is connected with salvation. So it is an action to be copied, which we're going to see in verse 15. <coughs> so it includes that, but it is much more than, I'd give you an example to copy. Once again, we see how John writes in multiple meanings. The strength of Jesus' words to something that Peter said, no, no, Lord, don't wash my feet. He comes back so strong, 
seem to clearly point to something a lot more significant than just foot washing. Okay? Everybody still tracking with me? All right. Fifthly in this passage, Peter's response suggests that he did not understand the prophetic significance of what Jesus was doing. And at one level, he was showing them that they were to serve and love in humility. But at a deeper level, because of this foot washing being a, pro a prophetic act that points to the cross, I think when he's saying, <coughs> afterwards you're going to know. Afterwards you're going to experience with me. Remember I said that a minute ago? That word know is really deep. I think he's saying, <coughs> you're going to go as deep as I'm going. Like me, you must be willing to die for one another. It, there's no indication that these poor guys understood what was going on at a deep level. But John, years later, 60 years later, you know how long that is? Yeah. In his first letter, 1 John 3.16, he says this, We know love by this, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. That's what he's talking about. When he says, after, you'll understand. Afterward, you'll know. One more thing on this passage. If Jesus' intent was to point to his self-sacrifice on the cross, then their acceptance of foot washing represented their acceptance of what Jesus would do on the cross. One of the things, I've been doing quite a bit of reading on the crucifixion. And one of the things that it's so hard for us, almost impossible for us, to contextually understand what it was to believe in a crucified Savior. The cross, we've heard the phrase, the scandal of the cross. It was a scandal that was so terrible. A, a Roman citizen, a, a murderer, a, somebody who did the worst things, if he's a Roman citizen, he doesn't get crucified because it's too terrible. Um, it, was, it was shameful. And here they proclaim, Paul said, I... I I preach Christ and Him crucified. We can't get our heads around it because it's, it's from a different era. It's from a different era. And so I think for us to understand this whole passion, we need to somehow get a little closer to the scandal of the cross. The incredible, incredible scandal. Okay, let's move on. He says in verse 10b, the second half, and 11, he says, One who is bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet. He is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, you are not all clean. of this time of great intimacy and incredible illumination, we are reminded again that there is a cloud of betrayal hanging over all of them. John is brilliant as he writes this. He doesn't ever let us get away from this tension. Now by the time of supper, we'll go back to, he said it in verse 2, now verse 11. At the time of supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. Verse 2 and verse 11 point to the spiritual... <coughs> Pardon me. The spiritual battle that is quickly building <coughs> with the dark powers. I want you to get this. It's happening at one level. It is happening powerfully and dramatically and symbolically and everything at this human level. 
But this same thing is happening at the level of the powers that be. The powers of darkness. And the great culmination, of course, will be at the cross. So John is not letting us ever get away from this tension. It's building, it's building, it's building. Not only in what is happening in the natural, (coughs) but in the spiritual. (coughs) Pardon me, I'm sorry. Everybody's still with me? Is any of this helping? Okay. Verses 12 to 15. After he'd washed their feet and put on his robe and returned to the table, he said to them, Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Whenever I have, especially in my first, say, ten years following the Lord, whenever this passage was taught, this whole section, they hung it all around verse 14 and 15. I have done this as an example for you. Uh, Literally, the word is as a pattern. It's like uh, a seamstress that lays out a pattern that can be copied. So, let's look at this. Jesus explicitly says that he has set a pattern or example for them to follow. And this is clearly a pattern of humble service. It is an unavoidable call to full obedience. That's not new to anybody here, right? But it was very hard for them, and it is very hard for us to follow. Follow this example. Because of pride. It's deep-seated. And we'll talk more on this when I get to the application. In a foot washing, Jesus is deeply connected with each one of them as individuals. Even more so, the parallel, of course, is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have the Eucharist, the Last Supper, right? And even as he passes this out, it's kind of a group thing. But foot washing, you get my full attention. My eyes are on you as I wash your feet. So, he's deeply connected. However, there's a greater challenge for the disciples Because if this foot washing indeed is a prophetic act, if it points to his self-sacrificing death, then Jesus is presenting to them an even bigger challenge. To follow him to the cross, because, as he said in verse 14, you're right, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Remember, I've taught you before that in Scripture... Um, the word God usually refers to Father, Lord, to God the Son, mm-hmm. and, and Spirit, of course, the third person, the Holy Spirit. So what's happening here is, is profound at so many levels. But if this is a prophetic act, He's calling them on that same journey. This week's episode is brought to you by the Impact Nations Facebook page. Impact Nations has the privilege of seeing the kingdom of God at work in nations all over the globe. We'd like to tell you about the thousands of people getting clean water, communities being transformed, and lives being rescued. You can catch regular updates on this sort of thing every day on Facebook. You'll also find Steve's writings. For each of the next eight Wednesdays, Steve will be posting a different article on a line of the Lord's Prayer, including examples of how it has shaped his own prayer life. So head to facebook.com slash impactnationsministries to get your daily dose of encouragement. And now, back to the podcast. Verse 16 and 17 says, I assure you, a slave is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I'm going to come back to this in a minute, but... This finishes with a beatitude. A beatitude is when when Jesus declares a blessing. 
There's two Beatitudes here. There's a Beatitude here and there's a Beatitude in uh, John 20. And I just can't remember the verse. Might be 29. But he's saying you're blessed if you do this. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Blessing means happy, even blissful. (coughs) And as is consistent in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he says the fullness of life comes in both hearing and doing. Remember the man who built his house on the rock? He heard it and he put it into practice. So that's quickly, because I just didn't feel like I could take any longer going verse by verse here. But that's, that gives you some of the stuff that's in here. Now I want to go with something I've been just thinking about and thinking about for a few days. And that's the application. Because Jesus said, for I've given you an example that also you should do just as I've done for you. Right? In verse 15. So he says, I've given you an example. What is his example meant to teach us? Um, I really... In, I was really enriched this week by Jean Vanier, who's one of my favorite writers. And he, he said some marvelous things, and I thought about him, and I wrote him down, and I added some of what I thought. And, but I just want to acknowledge Jean Vanier. Tonight, we've seen once again that John's Gospel can be approached and understood at a fairly surface level. Um... I would say a fairly surface understanding of the passage we just did is that we should serve one another in the way Jesus demonstrated through the foot washing. And that's certainly true. But to stop there, I think, misses too much of John's intention. Because, guys, he's writing about the last 24 hours before his arrest. And... uh, There's just nothing wasted here. This passage is about so much more than that. It's a a powerful demonstration of a new kind of life in the kingdom of God. John is presenting a whole new kind of life. The synoptic gospels use the term kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. John uses the term eternal life or abundant life. But it's this other kind of life in Christ. And that's what this passage to me is so clearly about. So, (coughs) what is it meant to teach us? This is not an exhaustive list. This is just as far as I got. Until I got exhausted. (laughs) First of all, As he washes their feet, Jesus is revealing who God the Father really is. We see Jesus literally descending in order to serve. As he kneels down in front of each one, he descends in order to serve. The book of glory, the second half of John, reveals God again and again as vulnerable. John introduced this in the prologue because in the incarnation, when the Word became flesh, the infinite and the eternal God became weak and vulnerable and became fully a man. (coughs) We've We've talked about the incarnation quite a bit. I'll say again, I'm of the opinion... It is an area that needs so much more teaching and so much more study. Um, It is absolutely critical to understanding the Trinity and understanding Christ. But let me just, we're not going to go down there today, don't worry. (laughs) But let me just say that in the prologue, in the incarnation, we see God become weak and vulnerable. This is shocking to the disciples. It was shocking And uh, it shocked them at that moment, what was going on. And in less than 24 hours, at Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. That's why Peter said, you'll never wash my feet. 
let me go deeper than he's embarrassed. His, there's a, his, his worldview is being shaken. Jesus, or rather Peter, is secure in following a big, powerful God. I'll go right out on a limb. When I'm, so much when I'm in churches, and I go, you guys know because of what I do, I go to so many churches, that the worship is always about this big, powerful, triumphant, going to stomp the, the enemy's head, God. And we're more secure with that. We want a big, powerful God. And so did Peter. So his perception <laughs> and his attitude, <clears throat> he says, no way. Is completely normal. The church wants a powerful, victorious Lion of Judah. And his words reveal... Don't forget to talk to me. Pardon me? Don't forget to talk to me. Oh yeah. His words reveal <coughs> the gap that is in all cultures, including much of our church culture, the gap um, between our values and the culture of the incarnate God, the canonic God, and God's kingdom. For many of us, and at many different times in our lives, there is a gap between our image of who Jesus is and who He really is. I came through a time in, in modern church history which was very triumphalist. Very triumphalist. And it had all kinds of permeations. We were going to take over politics. And we were going to enforce righteousness. And all of these things. And, uh, and that is an example of what I'm talking about here. Peter at that point was shocked. That his God and Savior. Would be the one who, who gets so low he washes his feet. Secondly, Jesus is confronting, in this foot washing, He is confronting the pyramid power structures. All societies are built on this pyramid. Uh, you know, I spend a lot of time with pastors in different countries of the world when I teach them. If I get three days, by the third day I'm going after this pyramid. Because the church is built this way, Companies are built this way. All structures are built this way. A pyramid. And the guy at the top is the one who has the, the power and the control. Right? And that, we all know that. I absolutely believe that in the kingdom of God that pyramid's upside down. Um, Jesus takes the bottom place. Always. Not sometimes. Always. And Jesus came to transform our world, therefore our organizational structures. He came to bring the kingdom, to change from a pyramid to a family, a body. Paul talks a lot about the body and the family. And this is, this is prophetically what's going on as he washes their feet. He is demonstrating himself as the least and I think another reason he's doing it is to make us attentive to the least. The gospel is always upside down, 100% of the time. Some of you have heard me say many times, gospel is always inclusive, religion is always exclusive. Usually religion doesn't know it's being exclusive. But it says, if you look like us, if you talk like us, if you believe like us, then you can be us. Gospel is always inclusive, and gospel is always upside down. And the powers that be, that I alluded to ten minutes ago, are always built on a pyramid structure. And that's why that's what we see everywhere. Number three. Foot washing is not about a new ritual. I really don't believe that's taking it so simplistically, so... He says, I did this as an example for you. Meaning, okay, whenever we gather, we better wash each other's feet. It's so much deeper than that. It's not about a ritual. <clears throat> it's about a revolution. It's a revolution of humility, of smallness, of being other-centered. 
Jesus is showing us a new model for true authority. He knows who he is. He just said in verse 14, you called me teacher and Lord and you're right, I am. I'm your Lord and teacher. So there's no false humility here. But it's this, guys, and this is what cuts across socioeconomics, it cuts across politics, it cuts across all power structures. It's that authority comes from below, not down from above. What Jesus is teaching them and us when he gives us this example is to live others-centered. His example is about service, it's about love, about communion of hearts, about openness, about vulnerability. Ken and Margaret <clears throat> were with me one time <clears throat> in Uganda, and we were just one night, all the gang had worked their tails off all day, and we were crowded into the pastor's house, us on the right, one of us on the left, because like we're your main guys. And Jesus, I know he was waiting for it. Because, you see, that's the spirit of the world. I know he was waiting for it. And, and he didn't rebuke him. He just said, wait a sec. And he called all the guys together. And, the, and when they heard James and John's suggestion, remember how excited and blessed the other ten were? <laughs> Why? Because they thought, wait a minute, I'm as good as he is. And Jesus said this. Meditate on this. Verse 42 to 45. He said, listen to me. In the world, in the structures of the powers that be, in the world, the, the Gentiles, the world rules, it rules over one another. They rule over the people. Verse 43, the language is so emphatic. He says, this shall not be so with you. It's not a suggestion. It's not we're going to try to work toward that. He's saying we are a different people. It's a different kingdom. It's a different society. Whatever analogy you want to use. It was huge. So why is this so hard for us? It's because of our intrinsic, built-in search for recognition. For significance. It is so deeply rooted in me. And it is so deeply rooted in you. And apart from a deep work of the Spirit of God. I think it cannot change. And I think it only changes by bits. By bits. You watch it in Paul. You watch it in Peter. You mean these are the guys. And it only changes by steps. I think this is why Jesus said in verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. What's the connection? The word messenger there is apostolos, apostle. An apostolos is not the head of a denomination or a group of churches. And after, I live in an era, guys, if you knew how many cards are sitting up in my drawer, and everybody got an upgrade. They're Apostle Fred, Bishop Bill. And yet it's in me too, right? It's deep in us, the need for recognition. Somehow I need to feel special. And so do you. It's in all of us. And that's why the Spirit of God's got to get hold of us. Now, why did Jesus say that? Because he knew, he says, yeah, and apostles are not greater than the one who sent them. Why did he say it? Because he knew the great tendency for hero worship and factions. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Well, man, I'm, I'm in Paul's camp. Yeah. Well, I'm with Peter. Well, I'm with Apollos. He's saying, knock it off. Which is also a reason why I don't think pastors, biblically, the first, first century pastors didn't baptize. 
you know, if Phil leads me to Jesus, he baptizes me. Because it's all about Christ, not about who who baptized me. Number four. <coughs> I'm nearly done. Are you guys still awake? Here's something else that I think we get from this pattern, this example. When he washed their feet, Jesus gave his full attention to each one. I find it so hard to give my full attention. My mind's busy. I think I've got important things going on. It's a killer for me when I'm doing a conference or we're somewhere and there's, I see 11, 12, 15 people behind the one I'm talking to. But Jesus didn't have 15 people waiting. He probably had 15,000. But he gave his full attention. I think I can learn from that too. And I think that Jesus was revealing the infinite importance of each person. Number five. To wash is to cleanse, right? Literally the word is babe. Cleansing <coughs> we've said it's tied in with baptism. But as well, and maybe even deeper, cleansing in the Bible is always a picture of forgiveness. The foot washing was about deep forgiveness. And this is a huge issue for us all. If any of us, we sat for three hours, chat with each other, just talking, we would hear red flags in one another's lives of areas where we've not forgiven of hurt we're still carrying, of people we haven't really forgiven. I, I, you can take it to the bank. And so Jesus is, is taking us to a place of deep forgiveness. You guys have heard this. Forgiveness is like peeling an onion. It's just layers and layers and layers. And don't we all know the feeling of, oh man, Lord, that again? I've dealt with that so many times. And he never rebukes us. He says, I know. But it's hurting you. So let's scrub off another layer. Number six. What Jesus did in that room has direct implications, not just for you and me, but for our society. I just talked to you a few minutes ago that society is built on a pyramid. And those who rule, the ones who are at the top, must always work to maintain their position of power. Mm -hmm. I promise you, they always have to. Mm -hmm. It's obvious we get to see it on the 6 o'clock news with politics, but it's in work, it's in a hospital, an educational organization, it's whatever. This, so, so <clears throat> this has huge implications. What took place in that upper room has direct implications for the bottom of the pyramid, for the poor, for the weak, for the vulnerable. It has implications for the sweatshops. It has implications for people that are working three and four jobs just to survive because they're at the bottom of the pyramid, because they don't understand, because the, the powers that be denies the, the gospel of the kingdom, which says infinite value in each one. When I'm washing your feet, you're the only one I see. You are infinitely valuable. Christ in you. This maintaining of power structures, of holding on to the power, is at the root, and I've been really thinking about this because Christina, afterwards when we have coffee, you asked her where she was this weekend in D.C. But I'm telling you, this maintaining of power is at the root of all racism and all sexism. That's at the root right there. Okay. Maintaining power. I want you to do something for me. We're almost done. I want you to do something for me. Uh, close your eyes. I always can picture better with my eyes closed. So I'll impose that on you guys. <coughs> I want you to picture 12 men reclining at a table. They're probably in the upper room. 
Now picture Jesus stripping to his undergarment and putting a towel around his waist and descending in front of each one. He's unhurried. Each one gets his full attention. It's silent. It is rocking their world. It is silent. And this is incredibly intimate. And as this book of glory begins, there's a great shift in the spirit. And you can't articulate it, but you can feel it. There's something different. You can't understand it, but there's something different. tonight from what Jesus' example is. He's telling them and he's telling us to stay close. Stay close to one another. Stay close to the weak and the needy and the vulnerable and the lonely. He's saying, wash their feet through the means of care and attention and friendship. I have been so challenged this week because he's challenging me and I think us with this. Every one of us can reach beyond our current comfort zone in our usual sphere, every one of us can reach to one person. It's really interesting that this whole episode finishes with the beatitude, which is a declaration of blessing. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. The canonic love this is who God really is. This is what he's like. <clears throat> I've told you, I think the highest revelation of God is Christ on the cross. And this is like it. The revelation of who God is. Kneeling down. And washing our feet. kingdom always works from the bottom. This is the way life in the kingdom works. Jesus washing our feet is not one of the ways. It is the way the kingdom works. Lord Jesus, I just ask you to Help us and speak to all of us and take us deeper and deeper into you, into your canonic love. Jesus, you reveal the Father kneeling in front of us, vulnerable and attentive. The Lord, I'm struck again and again. While you were holding all of creation together, Colossians 1, holding it all together. You were kneeling with a towel around you, giving your full attention. God, take us deeper. Shake what needs shaking. New understanding, new revelation, new paradigm. We want to be people of the way. And this is the way. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. 
Hey, if you sense the Lord's presence, just the weightiness of his presence during that closing prayer, would you email us? We would love to hear about what the Lord's saying to you, what he's doing in your life. You can email podcast at impactnations.com. In the meantime, have a great week. Be blessed.